Morgan Cheatham is Vice President at Bessemer Ventures and an MD student at Brown. He was Forbes 30 under 30 for venture capital. Essentially, Morgan is a rapidly ascending bullet train who's super smart and has lots of interesting theses and billion dollar ideas in health and life sciences, including ones in generative AI and biosecurity, which we discuss. We also spend a lot of time talking about relationship building, networking, and using the content game to make it in health. I'm super excited about this episode. I hope you enjoy. What have you learned about relationship building, specifically relationship building and playing the long game? Like, what have you picked up there? Yeah, so one thing I started doing a couple years ago that I've been meaning to share is um, when I meet people for the first time, like, I think there's kind of two kinds of meetings that you can have in life, right? There's the meeting you're really looking forward to, and then there's the meeting you're really dreading. Um, and it's unrealistic to imagine a world where there aren't meetings that you're dreading, although maybe at some point you become so successful that you only have meetings that you enjoy, right? But for the most part, when I meet new people, you know, we all do a little bit of pre-work, a little bit of homework to understand someone's background. But I ask a second question, which is like, what is this person uniquely positioned to teach me? And you could flip that the other way, right? What, what should I want to learn uniquely from this person? And in the conversation, I try to tease that out. Like I'll come in with a hypothesis. And as we're talking, I'll try to tease that out. And then the, the converse is also true, right? So based on this person's interest or based on who I perceive this person to be, what can I share with them that's unique? And what can I contribute to uh, their line of thinking or their work or, or their perspectives that they might value? And that's gone a long way in terms of finding meaning in every conversation, um, whether it's a five-minute catch-up with someone about a deal or whether it's like a sit-down breakfast with uh, you know, a founder who, who, who's sharing something new about, about a space. And if you're a venture investor, I'm guessing that a lot of the times the value add you give is either your network or some tidbits of information you've picked up because you're having lots of conversations, right? Is that mainly it? Because sometimes it's difficult to imagine if you're speaking to someone who's just a, a lot better than you, essentially. It's like, what can I offer this, this person? It's like, what kind of things can you put forward if you're in that position? As an investor or as a founder? As in if you're the investor speaking to anyone, really. I mean, this is going to sound cliche, but like I, I think everyone has something really unique to contribute and add. And um, there's no, you know, experience and achievement is one thing, but there's no substitute for passion or curiosity or grit. And frankly, the people I learn the most from might be on that side of the equation, right? We've all studied the people who are experienced um, and successful in a very didactic way. But some of the tidbits that I find uh, that that pique my interest throughout the day are from people who are just passionate or hustling or curious or trying to break into somewhere new, right? So I, I always come to conversations with like a certain level of, um, you know, humbleness of like, I, I will learn something from this person. And if and it's my job actually to figure out what that thing is. And if I leave the conversation and I haven't learned that, then then we didn't have the right conversation, right? And and, and that could be applied, you know, to, to a brief interaction, but it's more maybe appropriate for a longer conversation. But I just think that I have something to learn from everybody. And it's, it's kind of, I put the onus on myself to figure out what that what that thing is. You know, I think if you're someone who maybe feels like there's a power dynamic in a conversation, um, the most important thing you can do, especially if you're looking for mentors, which we could talk about, you know, how I've approached mentorship historically, um, is really to put yourself out there and like have strong beliefs, right? Like people enjoy speaking with others who are going to share a perspective that you can then kind of tease apart over time. If you come to the table and you're 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 kind of only asking questions or only wanting to know what the other person thinks, that's not really like a bi-directional conversation. Um, and so some of my favorite mentors have, I, I think, really instilled in me that it's a two-way street. It doesn't matter if someone's the CEO of a Fortune 50 company and you're an intern. Like, there there's there's a discourse to be had, and it's the responsibility of both both parties to figure out 
kind of what what that's going to look like. How do you start developing interesting thesis on healthcare or any other topic, especially if you're quite early on? Because there's a part of me that's like you you kind of need to know the rules before you break the rules, right? And maybe knowing the rules might take you two or three decades. So yeah, how are there any ways or are there any? I mean, is it about your information diet? Like, what what is it that makes you come up with interesting? I think points? it all comes down to consumption. Um, so you're you're a physician, so you know that. When you're steeped in this stuff day to day, it's really easy to become one myopic, two kind of uh, disgruntled about like, oh, it's never going to work, or oh, you know. So, so, so I think there's like this balance of be- being a domain expert and and understanding what's possible or what's theoretically possible, and then mirroring that with with a voracious kind of appetite for information, whether it's actually healthcare and life sciences specific or at, or coming from another industry. So, so one thing that I think I'm really um, privileged in at Bessemer is that we're a generalist fund. So I have colleagues that are experts in space tech and crypto and fintech and enterprise software and all of these other areas where incredible generational companies are being built. And I can sit there and say, okay, if, if, you know, if generative AI is, is transforming consumer social because we now have synthetic voice and synthetic avatars or, or, or what it might be, you know, the logical thinking is is very easy to say, how is that going to impact or what will happen when that technology is available in healthcare and, and life sciences? So, so that's one. Um, information diet is key. I had a professor, I took a design class at RISD um, in undergrad, which was probably one of the more formative courses I took, um, even though I was, you know, studying science. Uh, the, the design class really shaped how I view the world. And, and the one thing that that professor told us was like, like it is your responsibility to consume as much information as you as you physically and mentally can. Like that is what will set you free. Um, this professor also at the time was spending like seventy percent of his lived experience in VR. You know, he was like a really interesting person. Um, but you even look at you know people like Warren Buffett. He reads you know for eighty percent of his day. So so that's become an important I think part for me to say, how can I kind of train my priors, if you're like a Bayesian in this argument, and figure out kind of um, where there might be green shoots or where there might be signal um, from from all the noise out there. And that's been kind of a core to how I've generated new theses. The last thing I'd say just structurally in healthcare and life sciences is you can cheat a little, at least in the US, because um, regulation has kind of, you know, spawned so much of the innovation in in the ecosystem, particularly in, in health tech, but also life sciences. And so if there are interesting bills uh, or interesting kind of proposals that are happening, um, you know, politically and coming from, you know, within the government sector, those are often helpful threads to to run down. Um, it, it might be areas of, of opportunity. We could look at high tech. We could look at, you know, the CMS interoperability ruling uh, and many others in this light. One thing when I'm trying to form my own thesis in health and uh, life sciences is that I worry that am I just picking up on the popular trends and am I just browsing Twitter and agreeing with what everyone who I consider smarter than me is saying. And I guess the few ways I think I try and get around that is A, maybe read more primary sources of text, so try and go to stuff that other people aren't reading. B, try and find the freaks, the weird people who have weird opinions on stuff, because they might, you know, even a broken clock uh, strikes twice, strikes correct twice, I think that's the saying. the other thing, maybe this links to primary sources, is to just find rogue sources of information like the weird newsletter or maybe even go to like patent offices, you know, just really find really weird stuff that no one else is finding, which kind of links to information diet. Um, I'm curious, do you have any thoughts on how to make sure that you're not really just following what's hot right now or what the trend is and how you make your own like original theses and points? 
It's important to do that, though. I think whenever there's a cultural zeitgeist like we're having now or a cultural moment, um, for example, in, in generative AI, like uh, it, it's important to like ask yourself, like, why is there so much excitement about this thing? Right. Like also, like I'm an optimist. So um, when people are excited about stuff, like I, I'm usually pretty excitable. I also bring a skeptical lens to things, but I, I try to, you know, especially in technology, it's it's usually a matter of of when, not if with a lot of technologies. So so approaching with optimism. Um, I think that, you know, the primary source stuff is key. I would take it even a step farther and say lived experience, right? So if you work in healthcare and you work in care delivery and your only knowledge of care is your own experience as a patient, which like, let's put that on the table for a second, or headlines you've read on modern healthcare or TechCrunch or Twitter, like that's insufficient, I think, to like really do groundbreaking work in care delivery. You know, for me, going back to medical school and actually seeing what it's like on the ground to care for patients. Granted, you know, I'm early in that journey. That was a really important kind of primary source for me to round out some of that that knowledge and that experience and, and will only be a fraction of what some of the most, you know, um, you know, kind of lifelong committed uh, physicians have. But it's it's kind of enough for me to have empathy for their experience. I think the other thing is in healthcare, and this has been a recent thing I've been kind of thinking about, but I think we become complacent sometimes with our access to primary sources because we rely a lot on our own personal experiences. Like, well, so I can go get X, Y, and Z at CVS. So like, that's that's a problem that's solved or that's a problem that's not solved. But the reality is for many people working in tech, we're not representative of the population. And so that's why I think like, if you had the opportunity to just go shadow at a clinic or volunteer, you know, at, at a nursing home or, or do whatever to get just that, like an ounce of lived experience, I think it'll go a long way, um, you know, Judy Faulkner at, at Epic has done this brilliantly over the years where they actually have rotational programs for their software engineers to go into the hospital, see how physicians are interacting with it, right? See what their day-to-day -day is like. And I think, you know, we could we could talk about Epic all day, but I, I think that was a brilliant strategy from a, a human capital perspective that Epic has kind of maintained over many decades. I want to go back a bit to networking and relationship building because I think, A, is something that you look excellent at. Um, you're clearly a very likable guy who um, I've heard really good things about from everyone. So I think you really excel at this and obviously it's related to your career. Um, so the question is, if if I pitch you maybe the traditional uh, cringe-inducing networking of like, I've just read how to win friends and influence people and I've got my fresh set of business cards and I, I'm, I'm going to hit this conference, which is, um, you know, when you meet people, keep on saying their name, uh, compliment them, remember their remember their kids' names, um, send it, you know, have a CRM and send a yearly email saying, hey, let's just catch up. And yeah, let's just say that's a traditional way. What do you like agree with about that approach? What do you not agree with? And like, do you have any extra things that you do? Because I sense that you're someone who looks like you're effortlessly good at this, but I, I suspect there's a lot under the hood that you're doing. I'd honestly say you just have to care. <laughs> you know, like you're talking to another human, <laughs> you just have to care about them. I mean, Taking a step back, um, networking can be really anxiety provoking. And I think that, you know, in venture or in tech or, you know, startups in general, you know, there's a lot of ways that we collide. We collide at conferences, we collide over dinner, right? And, and some of these are really big forums that feel very high stakes. Others are more intimate and more kind of casual. And, and so there's kind of different vibes to navigate. I, I think in general, repositioning some of it as like, not I have to go network, but I get to network is a really important mind shift. Like, not I have to go meet these people. Like, I get to meet these people. Like, I'm in a position where I get to go talk to five people 
in this room who, who, who again, know something that I don't know and, and maybe can learn something. Like, I think it's that underlying, like, desire for, for learning and curiosity that fuels a lot of the networking that I do. Um, but I've also, I don't even consider it networking. I mean, the beauty of the venture job for me is that, frankly, I really like the people I get to work with. I like my colleagues at Bessemer. I love the founders I get to work with. And, you know, even founders that we haven't invested in, I, I'm, you know, texting them all the time and um, chatting with them, FaceTiming with them. So I think just, you know, allowing allowing yourself to build that personal relationship and just generally caring about someone as the as another person um, is helpful. And then I think also, um, you know, I'll just I'll just be transparent about this. Like, I don't look like a lot of people um, at a lot of the events I go to in healthcare and tech and venture. Um, I'm African-American and white and um I think that um, my ability to kind of share my, my personal story and how my personal identities kind of inform the way that I see the world has, you know, allowed other people to kind of let their guard down and share more about them themselves personally. And so I'm also, I'm not a proponent of like bring your whole self to work because I think that's that's totally up to like the, the choice of an individual, but bringing the authentic things about you that shape your worldview to conversations and to interactions that you have can also go a really long way in terms of building genuine relationships. Let me ask you a little bit about your um, content strategy. So I've seen you, you know, you do LinkedIn posts that, that do pretty well. They seem to be on, you know, topics around what you're interested in. And then you've also got the Decoding Biotech newsletter, which is super, super cool that you do with a few other people. Um, one of the things like I noticed from when I started doing this podcast was that um, even though it still isn't a big deal or it wasn't a big deal, when I would go to events, um, suddenly people might have heard of me and if I spoke to them it suddenly became like a warm intro where they might have seen that I've interviewed one of their friends and I think they just assume you're a bigger deal than you really are because of that so yeah I just want to kind of ask you about your content strategy in general like what's the I guess what's the goal with it like how you're approaching it and like what benefits have you noticed from from doing that kind of stuff because it's it's a lot of work like it like you're writing whatever it, it takes way more time than people think you, you would know best I mean your content is is prolific you know I I was very averse to putting my ideas online for a long time and I have to give credit to one of my best friends uh, Nikhil Krishnan who's the the think boy of, of healthcare. And I think he'd be okay with me uh, mentioning that he gave me this feedback. But, you know, we, we'd been having like super interesting conversations, getting to know each other, hanging out in Brooklyn, um, you know, again, getting to know each other as friends personally, in addition to, to colleagues in this space. And he, he, he said to me one day, he's like, look, I think it's kind of more of a liability for you to not put your ideas out there than it is, you know, a, um, a, a risk. And Because I, I was really scared, like, what if I say the wrong thing? What if I get canceled? Like I had all these fears about all the bad things that were going to happen to me if I shared what I thought online. Um, and they were largely like unfounded. And he said, I think it's more of a liability because, you know, what's the worst thing that could happen? And we kind of walked through the, the talk track and I'm like, well, the worst thing is I put an idea out there and people disagree and they say I'm stupid and I get canceled or whatever happens. Right. And and he's like, what's the best thing that could happen? And I was like, well, the best thing is that people would maybe be interested in the same topics that I'm interested in and they'd reach out to me and I'd get to know people and I'd learn something from them. Again, this like insatiable hunger for learning and, and new information. And he's like, you know, I really don't think that the the downside is that bad, the downside that you're, you're painting. Like someone disagrees with you because either way, if someone disagrees with you and you're wrong, you're going to learn something. If someone likes what you wrote and they introduce you to someone else or they introduce you to an article or, you know, you, you make a new friend or whatever it becomes, 
you're also going to learn something. So when I realized that no matter what, I'm going to learn something, I was like, okay, I'm in. Let me figure out how this content thing works. And then I think they were like, you know, small things like, you know, do you want to have a, like, do you want to be formal sounding? Do you want to be more casual? I tend to actually, as, as a person, I'm like built in a very formal way. Like I, I find that like I have to constantly tell myself to be like less formal. And, um, and so, you know, there's like these little stylistic things that I'm trying to figure out. My strategy overall is is very scattered. I, I welcome feedback if, if you have some, but I generally just like to share um, things that I find interesting, thought provoking, uh, theses that are kind of you know shower thoughts that I want to get feedback on, with the hopes of of meeting like minded people thinking about some of the same things. So that's kind of where I'm at in the journey. If we had this conversation in three years or five years, I might say something different. But at least so far, that that's where I am today. I have this thought on content and writing and whatever in the health and life sciences space. And I'd be curious about your thoughts on this, but it's basically that in health and life sciences, we're super traditional and we're running so far behind other industries, even say, uh, even I would say finance, business, et cetera, which are traditionally or sometimes a bit formal. Um, and essentially, if you just look at what people are doing in say finance, even law, especially in business, you look at the My First Million podcast, you look at Tim Ferriss, or in um, finance, you look at like Morning Brew, which is like the really famous newsletter, and you just copy them and do it in health or life sciences. It's like a cheat code, like no, because no one else is doing it. You're kind of like uh, the first person on the moon, like planting your flag. And it's so um, like open season for opportunity, like blue ocean stuff. Um, so yeah, I just feel like it's such an opportunity. I don't really get why more people don't do it. I think they're scared. I think there's a lot of fear. For sure. I know a lot of smart people who are far smarter than I am, who I'd love to you know, hear what they think on things. And um, I think it's also a big time commitment, right? Like you actually do have to carve out time to to write content, to make it coherent, right? Like writing is such a, and everyone says this and it's true, like writing is such a brilliant forcing function for congealing ideas and actually like making theses kind of coherent. And it's, it's, it's amazing what the human mind will do as you're like going down this rabbit hole um, and, and, and like running that exercise back. Um, but I agree with you. I, I think that there there's opportunity in healthcare and life sciences. I think that some in some ways the industry is plagued by kind of the history and historiography of peer review, um, and this notion that like if something's not peer reviewed, then you know it, it can't be put out, it can't be discussed, or you know, it, and and you know there's some merit. Like we sh like peer review is an important part of the scientific process, and you know on a separate day we could we could talk about some of its shortcomings. Um, but the interstitial space between like hypothesis generation and a published paper, like there's there's immense opportunity there. I think something that the media maybe doesn't do as well, like we're talking about like conventional media, is is really follow some of the exciting work that's being done. Like every week there's like new preprints hitting servers, there's new science coming out. Some of this stuff is actually like executable, meaning like I could download, you know, the model you build for your paper and run it on my machine hours after you're putting it on a preprint server like this is a remarkable velocity of of information sharing but the traditional media is like not not covering this very well and i think a lot of the knowledge sharing and discussions happening on twitter um and so i i think there's probably an opportunity for like someone to come in and like build that um content platform or discourse that's going to help bring a lot of these papers to life uh, because an area i'm also really passionate about is is access and readability of science and one of the things i shared recently on linkedin was a study that looked at, you know, how the readability of science is, is declining over time, particularly in areas of molecular biology and genomics and these areas that are really important to society. So, you know, again, the confluence of all these things, I think there's immense opportunity 
for for scientific writing, healthcare specific writing, domain expertise to kind of all come together with the massive amount of information that's now being produced online to hopefully, in theory, uh, make it more accessible to people who want to get involved and want to want to fight the good fight with us. Yeah, on the um, accessibility and readability point, I think there's that really famous, I think it's Oscar Wilde quote, which is something like, um, I'm sorry I wrote such a long letter. I didn't have time to write a short one. It's a lot of work to to condense something down and make it uh, super simple. I think, Morgan, the one, I guess, criticism I have of people, say, like us, who are basically young people who put out a lot of content, um, and I sometimes feel this, maybe it's an anxiety, but it's that you're kind of like... Um, you know that notion where it's like anyone who's actually doing work or anyone who's actually achieving something isn't there on Twitter talking about it. Like they're just like, they're doing shit. And then the the point that I sometimes think is like, uh, you know, how what am I doing? I'm just like posting a lot of content. I haven't actually achieved that much yet. Like maybe I should wait. Do you, do you ever get that anxiety? Do you know what I'm on about? Um, Honestly, I don't. I hear your point. Like there's actually a convention in venture where if you go to a startup's website and it's an early stage company and it's like way too polished, then you're like, oh gosh, they spend so much time on their website, like no time on their product, like immediate pass, you know? So so it's kind of like the analogy would be for people like, oh, you're spending so much time on all this external stuff and like, what are you actually working on? But there's ways to be very efficient with content. And I'm not saying ghostwriters, I'm not saying chat GPTing all your articles because that's not interesting. But there's ways to say, okay, every week I'm going to sit down on a Sunday and I'm going to write all of my tweets for the week, right? And like, if you are naturally a consumer of information, you're going to have thoughts. So if you just keep a notebook next to your computer or like use Notion or something, you can kind of keep track of this over time. And and it doesn't have to be this huge time sink, right? Like, I mean, I, I, I couldn't maintain a content empire, you know, while trying to study for step one and, you know, try to be productive in the clinic and and, and source investments and, and support portfolio companies. So um I think it's got to be part of a strategy, but not a full-time job by any means. Can we talk a little bit about any predictions or thesis you have in the space of health or life sciences? And hard question, but specifically, um, I want to hear the stuff that's a bit weird. Um, you know, I don't want to hear about telehealth or at-home care, like the really obvious stuff, but is there any stuff that you're a bit, you know, contrarian on or you've got a few unique thoughts on? Anything there? As I alluded to earlier, I think that there are kind of two two kinds of technological transformation I see happening in healthcare and life sciences. One is linear incremental progress. And that's kind of what we've had, you know, for a long time over the years. And we get better each year. You post better quality ratings, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's nonlinear, right? Stuff like the implementation of software for medical records, for example. Um, Various kind of approaches to programming biology, right? Venture as an asset class is fundamentally designed for nonlinear outcomes. It's not designed for technologies that scale linearly. And I think this has been called into question recently as we've looked at a lot of um, a lot of the stuff that's happening in healthcare services and asking ourselves, like, is this stuff actually well suited for the venture asset class? And a separate question, which is important but derivative, does venture do this category a disservice? by putting unnatural pressures on these organizations to grow in ways they were not designed to grow. And we could list a number of examples where that's manifested. Um, so for me right now, if you were to ask me, um, if I had $100, I would be investing 75 of it in science, and I'd be investing probably 25 of it in software or high margin tech-enabled services in healthcare and life sciences. Um, on that part, so picking up the ladder, tech-enabled services and software, 
I'm spending a lot of time in generative AI. There's a lot of hype around it. It's a technology that's actually been around for a long time. At Bessemer, we made our first investment in generative AI in 2018 into a company called Subtle Medical that was using generative AI for image denoising. And then we made an investment actually in 2019 into a company called Abridge that is using, and at the time in 2019, was using generative methods uh, to transcribe conversations between physicians uh, and patients, as well as physicians and other physicians. We are now at a point with GPT, whether it's 3, 3.5, soon to be 4, that the performance of these foundation models, which are these large models that are adept at many different kinds of tasks, is sufficiently interesting to produce results that might be valuable at scale. So, so spending a lot of time thinking particularly about how generative AI first is going to transform the healthcare back office, right? All the gutsy stuff that maybe as a physician, you know, you, you didn't get out of bed uh, in the morning to do, or you didn't go to go through training to do, particularly in the revenue cycle management space. So that's that 25%. And then the 75%, if I were to think about it in the life sciences, I'm spending a lot of time in computational biology, thinking about how these same generative methods married with efficiencies in scientific uh, methodology, sequencing, et cetera, um, can help us build larger, more efficient, and more successful uh, drug development organizations with the end goal, of course, on making medicines that work for patients. The wonkiest thesis I have right now that I will share, and I don't even know if it's that wonky, is in biosecurity. So some quick context is why I mentioned this area. My dad worked at the EPA for 30 years. He was, in his last role, he was the director of emergency response, which is one of the worst jobs in the world, frankly, because you basically get a phone call every time there is a wildfire, uh, you know, a hurricane, flooding, any sort of toxin in the water. Um, but what I noticed in the last few years of his career, notably with, with, with COVID, the kinds of things he was responding to, you know, increasingly became of biochemical origin broadly, right? Um, you marry that with kind of what we saw happen during the pandemic. And then you marry that with the fact that in an afternoon, using off-the-shelf computational methods, researchers have been able to design highly toxic molecules in silico that could, you know, in theory, easily be shipped to places and, you know, manufactured. I think this is going to be a very important area over the next few years. The questions that loom are, what are the business models for the technology companies, both software as well as molecular technologies uh, that are going to kind of contribute to the biosecurity discourse? And what kinds of teams and what kinds of skill sets are going to be required to develop these companies? I would imagine it's going to require folks with deep computational experience, deep biochemical and scientific experience, you know, security experience broadly, and an understanding of the way that contracting works in the government, right? We're specifically talking about defense contracting and being able to tap into some of those RFPs, some of those budgets, and some of those deployment cycles. So I've just given you a little bit of a tour of the the things I'm currently kicking around. Um, there, there will probably be more things, but that's kind of the high level of what's occupying my my mind space right now. Well, so I understood very little of that last point. So maybe you could do an explain that come five business or how, how, how what would this look like? Like, I, I don't for biosecurity. It. Yeah. So yeah. if you're a synthetic biologist today and you're using computational methods to develop new molecules, how do you know that what you're developing isn't potentially toxic, right? Like, do you have access to every screening library 
um, that's, you know, produced, whether it's by you know, the federal government, state governments, international governing bodies to say, hey, the sequences or the nucleic acids that you're thinking of producing or putting together uh, could actually cause harm to society in this way. It's like, do we have appropriate guardrails in the synthetic biology space today to prevent catastrophic biochemical events from happening at scale? My gut and my research suggests that, no, we don't have that. I don't mean to be alarmist in any way, but my sense is that, again, as we saw with software, it's actually, it's not a big mental leap. As things became digital and software proliferated in a lot of industries, we needed to secure that information that had become digital across those industries. And the cybersecurity sector blossomed, right, as those uh, pieces of information not only came online, but became interconnected. We have a very similar trend happening now as biology and chemistry is increasingly programmable and digital, right? And we're going to need infrastructure to make sure that that information is both kept safe and also not used um, for for downstream harm. Um, I think these technologies are very early. This is a very early thesis in general, but I would imagine that the category itself will produce uh, tens of billions of dollars, if not more, of uh, if not hundreds of billions of dollars of, of value to society over the next 10 years. And that's some cross-pollination of different fields. And then it's like the second order effect of what's happening today and then what we'll need tomorrow. So that's super cool. Um, can we do this billion dollar health ideas section? You kind of talked about some of them, but uh, yeah, if tomorrow you're starting a billion dollar health company or life sciences company, uh, what are you making? Yeah, you know, I think that there's going to be a couple interesting, you know, billion dollar platforms. I, I, I still think that payviders are an interesting concept. So this notion that you're more tightly coupling, you know, the reimbursement of care with the delivery of care, I think that as we see, you know, some of the larger payers, whether it be United or others, uh, begin to pick up acquisition activity uh, in the in the next kind of year or so as as assets have become more uh, cost effective to buy, we're going to see more experimentation of this payvider model. And then there are great examples, of course, uh, you know, whether it be Kaiser or uh, other IDNs in the U.S. Um, but I think that there are going to be massive businesses that are that are still built that align providers and payers in this way. Um, the other areas, again, that I mentioned, that I think there's going to be uh, massive enterprise value created is, is going to be the application of, of generative technology in healthcare. And if we think, you know, I talked a little bit about the back office. If we think about this in the front office, there's huge opportunity in prognostics, right? So being able to actually predict disease progression. Of, of different diseases using digital biomarkers. So you could use images to predict images, for example, right? Um, or, you know, clinical data plus images to predict some sort of, you know, later down the road uh, disease disease phenotype. That's an area that I'm, that I'm extremely passionate about. I think in general, and you might appreciate this being a physician, one of the biggest realizations that I've had in medical school so far is how poorly we are able to characterize most diseases today. Like, We've done a good job in a, in, a, in a number of areas, certainly, over the last several centuries. But there are still so many diseases where I leave the lecture hall or I leave my Zoom lecture. And the takeaway for me is, okay, these are the symptoms, but we don't actually understand the etiology and pathophysiology of why this disease is happening. And I think there's going to be you know, massive value provided to the, to, the, to the biomedical sector as we use computation, as we use this new data, whether it be omics data or clinical data that's come online to better characterize these diseases. So maybe you put that in like the computational diagnostics realm, but I think it's tightly coupled with also the therapeutic opportunities. And then 
Yeah, I think within the next decade, would certainly believe that there's going to be a billion dollar or multi billion dollar biosecurity company. Frankly, I hope there are there are several. To touch on the generative AI point, can you color me in in terms of what you see as cool opportunities in health and life sciences in a business capacity versus just stuff that's like a cool toy? Like where are like the cool use cases? Yeah. So being practical, the revenue cycle is is probably one of the most interesting from a business uh, opportunity perspective. So if we think about the role of billers and coders in healthcare today, having to go through clinical corpuses, so medical records the, you know, within the EMR to pull out relevant information and code that in a way that can then be submitted to a health plan for reimbursement, this is a task that generative models uh, can be applied to. I would say that you know, current state today is, is GPT 3.5 the model under that that that's kind of contributing to chat GPT is it well suited to do this? No. Um, does it perform well on this task? I haven't seen any published, you know, literature that suggests it can. But can you today give chat GPT a clinical vignette and have it spit out an ICD-10 code or a CPT code? Yes. And I've I've done this and I've done it with clinical vignettes from, you know, medical school, from, you know, the hospital, and it and it can do this. So I think the opportunity here is to take a foundation model like GPT and apply a domain-specific model from the healthcare industry, right? So I don't know what modality that will be, but models that can kind of better characterize the universe of appropriate codes and apply that to what GPT can do. So the, the, the amalgamation of those two, in theory, um, should be able to automate the work of billers and coders. With any sort of technology like this, I'm a big believer in crawl, walk, run, right? I'm not that interested in like people losing jobs, right? That will happen as a result of these technologies being adopted. And our job as a society is to figure out how can we reskill individuals, right? How can we redeploy their skill sets in other areas? But we we have to start with human in the loop, right? And we have to start with first empowering workers to be more efficient and then identifying ways to peel off and continue to improve our performance and accuracy. So I think the revenue cycle space is, is gonna be massive. I'll be honest with you, you know, I'm not, I'm not not excited about revenue cycle, but I don't get up every day of my life and dream about the revenue cycle. But I think there's going to be a lot of really, really big businesses um, that are that are built in that area. Can you talk me through your information diet? Um, like purely selfishly, I, I just I really want to know what you're reading. Are there any are there any good bits I'm missing? Like that includes um, books, podcasts, uh, websites, uh, newsletters, just anything. Is there anything that springs to mind that like, go check that out? So I'm a big believer that no single resource or platform has a monopoly on on good ideas. Um, so everything I'm reading, I mean, right now, as I mentioned, I just got out of a hematology exam. So I've been reading a lot of, uh, you know, lecture lecture slides and, and first aid on hematology. But you know, in all seriousness, um, I read a lot of uh, content from Twitter. So whether it be like preprints or substacks there, um, you know, anywhere there, where there seems to be a smoke signal, you know, there, there's, there's, there's fire. So I run that down. I listen to a lot of, uh, a lot of podcasts, a lot of audiobooks. Um, you know, I'm synthesized stuff from like even movies. I'm really interested right now in history and historiography. So historiography being like the study of the way history about something was written. And I'm really interested in that as it relates to healthcare and life sciences. So I've been trying to tease out like who's writing about, you know, early days in the lab with, with you know, X discovery. Like, you know, wh what was that like? And like, how how did they write about that experience? Like, I, I'm very interested in some of those those stories. And I, 
I wish there were more people writing about them. That's actually a, a gap in the content sphere that I, I haven't been able to, um, to solve. And then I'd say one book I read recently that, uh, just to be specific with your question, that I thought was, you know, uh, pretty salient, or I read it a couple of years ago and revisited it recently, is um, The Book of Why by Judea Pearl. Have you read that one? It's really nope. interesting. Um, Judea Pearl is a, a, a pretty well-known uh, computer scientist who's written a lot about causal inference, so how we know what we know and how we think about evidence generation for what we know. And um, it's a pretty thought-provoking book just about like kind of foundations of knowledge. So that's one that I'm, I'm ruminating on at the moment. Just on your Twitter point, I did a life audit recently uh, from a dopamine standpoint. So I, I kind of made this matrix of what's fast dopamine, what's medium dopamine, and what's slow dopamine in my life. And then on the other end of the matrix I had, is it valuable? Is it kind of in between? Or is it just not valuable? So obviously I wanted to get rid of the stuff that's like quick dopamine and not giving me any value. I mean, I think we all have our own vices. Um, but there's there's this like golden zone of stuff that's fast dopamine, but it's actually really valuable. And Twitter is <laughs> hot on that. It's it's so good. And I, I feel like it's such a competitive advantage if uh, you are on it. Uh, a lot of good stuff on there. Uh, like your preprint, yeah, for example. Appreciate so, that. Uh, super into it. Thank you. Um, I think the last thing I wanted to ask you was, and we've spoken about it a lot throughout, but are there any specific habits or ways you approach problems or any things you do that you think have helped you uh, get to where you are today or even uh, will get you to where you want to go? I think we've touched on this in a few different ways in our conversation, but maybe just to make it explicit, um, I'm I'm trying to describe my, my content consumption strategy or my kind of in focus on curiosity in in a, in a very explicit way, and that is kind of Bayesian learning. So, for the folks who are computer science geeks um, on the on the podcast, you know they'll appreciate that Bayesian statistics is a field of statistics that essentially um, explores how kind of the belief that something is going to happen is based on kind of prior distributions that represent kind of information that you've had access to. Um, and, and so, when I think about myself, I'm like, oh well. Um, if, if if I have to make a decision, like I'm making it based on the context around me and then everything else I've trained myself to understand or know. And in Bayesian statistics, those are called your priors, right? Training these prior distributions. So w without getting too into the weeds on on the actual mathematics here, I, I just think like the, the common theme is, is is curiosity. It's it's information consumption and appreciating like what actually works for you. Like, do you learn reading books? Do you learn talking to people? That's another thing we didn't we didn't mention. But again, a lot of what I learn also comes from conversation with, with friends and, and really prioritizing that in your life, like carving out the time, like I am going to learn whatever it is. It doesn't have to be a specific thing, but I'm going to spend the next amount of time, you know, hour, two hours. In case of Warren Buffett, it's 80% of his day, right? Reading, synthesizing, and learning. Like there's no greater joy that I have, like when I have a free weekend and I can kind of just like go on the internet and like just peruse and learn and like watch stuff and consume like that's a that's a, that's a pastime so so that'd be the main thing is that that bayesian learning framework the other two things that are coming up for me that are um particularly salient to me now as i'm ba balancing medical school and balancing investing is one keep it simple it's really easy to let your life get super complicated and likely the the, the outcome of that is going to be unnecessary stress burnout um, you know, kind of, you, you, you might lose desire or passion for what you're doing. And I've, I've definitely had moments where I've, where I've burned out and, and felt exhausted. And so I think for me, like a big theme this year is, is just keeping things simple, um, and, and saying no to stuff that's not giving me energy. Right. So we, you, you mentioned that a little bit, um, earlier. And then the last, last one, 
um, which is kind of funny because it's something that is like, you know, from, from Charles Darwin, but this notion of adapt or die, right? So as new technologies come out or, 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 or new information comes out, it's easy to have a visceral reaction to it, especially if it's troubling or unsettling, like GPT, like why is it so good at what it's doing and what does it mean for me? And am I, am I going to be replaced? Like, it's very easy to resist change and innovation and let me be very clear. I think that all of this technology needs to be explored in collaboration with ethics researchers, right, and and and, and sociologists and folks who can really help us um, characterize the impact it'll have and the ways it can all go wrong. Um, but that being said, like this stuff, a lot of this stuff is a matter of when, not if. And so the derivatives of this is don't sit on the sidelines, right? Like if you have an opportunity to get in early to something and to get in early to contribute, not just to talk about it, lean in. I think I think in general, just continuing to um, stay curious and, 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 that, and that loop will kind of feed itself. So I hope you enjoyed that episode. You can find all my links by going to bigpicturemedicine.co.uk. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, then please consider leaving a review. By the way, all of these episodes are now available in video formats on Spotify and on YouTube. Thanks for listening.